Me wanna see the people rock and prance tonight. Revolution is inevitability. There's a limit to every man's ability to take shit from elected cabinets filled with prejudice, bias, and bigotry. Viciously taxing the poor, trying to ensure big bank liquidity. Tell the bourgeois when injustice is law, the right to resist become responsibility. You see it happening from Cairo to Tripoli, public unrest, anti West hostility, self immolation, pirate. Technically, ignites a nation to regain civility. Is that what it takes? Push a man till he breaks and take when dignity. When them lift them eyes up, people gonna rise up. Bun Babylon is a high probability. Everybody jump up. Everybody move up. Everybody jump up. Everybody move up. Welcome, everybody, to the Housing First podcast. I'm your host, Kara Burrell, and my guest today is Donald Whitehead Jr., the executive director of the National Coalition for the Homeless, an organization based in Washington, D.C., working towards ending homelessness. You can find their website at nationalhomeless.org. Aside from being the executive director of the National Coalition for the Homeless, Donald has been working on homelessness, recovery, and racial equity for over 25 years. He currently trains, teaches, and coaches racial equity work across the country in collaboration with the REP's dynamic team. On a personal note, Donald is also a stand-up comedian, like me, and an actor who has performed in five movies and has received a regional Emmy for a role in the film Open the Sky. Welcome to the show, Donald. Thank you very much, Kara. It's very, very um, uh, great to be here. Uh, Really thankful for the opportunity. Really thankful to have you on. So um, let's get right in, get right into it. Um, a question, kind of just for myself, being a fellow comedian: When did comedy come into play in comparison to the work you're doing to solve homelessness? So I've I've used so you have to be um, able to rely on uh, 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 these stressors, and uh, you have to be able to get away from kind of the tragedy that homelessness is sometimes. So. I used comedy as therapy um, for for myself. I would um, uh, go on stage and and uh, talk about the ridiculous ridiculousness of the system, um, but I also used it as a fundraiser. Um, way back when, um, uh, there used to be a really really big fundraiser uh, that Whoopi Goldberg um, uh, and uh, Billy Crystal and Robin Williams did called Comic Relief. Oh, and they yeah. raised millions of dollars for homelessness. And uh, so I've done over the years, many, many fundraisers with comedy as a focus. Um, also worked with a gentleman down in Florida who used comedy as therapy for homeless people. Um, so wow. comedy's uh, been a instrument uh, that has helped um, with providing resources for programs and also providing some uh, relief from the trauma that people who've gone through homelessness um, experience. That's beautiful. Thank you. Okay, so from your website, I can see that your organization has started the hashtag Housing Not Handcuffs campaign. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. Now, that campaign started about five years ago, and the the focus for Housing Not Handcuffs uh, was to um, uh, really raise the awareness around criminalization of homeless people. Mm -hmm. So basically there are 
198 different communities at last count uh, that criminalized things like sleeping on a bench or camping in a park or putting up a tent. Some even criminalized walking across a parking lot because you were, if you were homeless. And uh, we raised that issue because um, it, it costs a lot of money to criminalize homelessness. It costs more than it does to house homeless people. Um, if you look at uh, over the course of the year, how many people are charged with what we call quality of life crimes. Uh, so we brought together a bunch of homeless led groups in Denver, Colorado, uh, and we came up with the, the idea of using the campaign to combat uh, the cities who were using criminalization as a way to hide homelessness in their community. And um, we have had some really um, successful um, showdowns uh, in the judicial system uh, with, with some of these communities that uh, use criminalization as, as the way to, to not end homelessness, but to hide homelessness. And so that campaign has been going pretty strong. We have uh, communities all over the country working on the issue uh, haven't solved it yet. And, and you know, the, the real uh, kind of uh, unbelievable part of this is that we have communities that are criminalizing homelessness, uh, even though the CDC says that's a horrible, uh, unsafe, and uh, unwise thing to do. There are cities that ignore the CDC guidance that says you shouldn't criminalize homeless people or sweep homeless encampments during a pandemic. Yeah, that's inhumane to do that. I'm glad that there are people like you out there that are doing these initiatives and campaigns because like I know for myself when I was homeless, I when I was sleeping on the subway, I got a fifty dollar ticket for sleeping on a subway bench. Like that doesn't make any sense. How are you gonna give someone a ticket who and make them charge them money when they don't have any already? Clearly they don't have a home, you know. So that's amazing that you have that that campaign. And it makes homelessness tougher. Because once you get a criminal record, you may or may not be able to pay the fine. Then it then it kind of it doubles, um, and then you miss a court date, and all of a sudden you have some kind of criminal history that prevents you from getting a job or getting a housing unit. And so you've done nothing to um, to deal with homelessness. You actually made it worse for that person. Yeah, exactly. That brings up a question I'm going to ask in a little bit, but. Um... So I know that the National Coalition for the Homeless is involved in advocating for policy change when it comes to ending homelessness. What specific policy changes are on the top of your organization's list at the moment? So um, I'm glad you asked. There, there's two um, really big underlying reasons why people are homeless in this country, and that's the lack of affordable housing and poverty. Mm -hmm. uh, if you address those two things, you can significantly um, decrease the number of people that are homeless. You might, in fact, end it. So we're working, uh, we're about to launch a campaign called Bringing America Home Now. And that campaign is going to look at both housing and income and look at some of the issues that would really make a difference. One of them would be, you know, just increasing the number of subsidized housing units in this country. We think Section 8 shouldn't be a program that limits the number of people that qualify, it should be an entitlement. So we believe that housing should be a human right in this country. And it's mm -hmm. something that you only earn um, up to a certain uh, up to a certain income level. 
Uh, if you work a full-time job, you should be able to afford a place to live. Uh, in the richest country in the history of the world, I might add. Uh, but if you can't afford a place to live, the other way we can help is to increase people's income. So we're working on a number of things along those lines. Um, we, we do support the fight for 15, raising the minimum wage. But in a lot of communities, we know that's not enough. Mm -hmm. So if you give people $15 an hour in New York City or Washington, D.C. or California, they still can't afford a place to live. So right. we, we believe that there should be Andrew Yang, who may run for mayor, um, has talked about uh, giving people money. And we believe that that is a way to really um, address poverty by creating a universal basic income. Okay. So giving people uh, $2,000 a month or whatever that number turns out to be uh, so that they can um, actually uh, use that money. And, and studies have already shown when this has been practiced, people have used that money to get better jobs. They've used the money for savings, a lot of really productive things, um, and it, it has helped them. And we, we don't have definitive information about housing yet, but we, from everything we've seen so far, we do believe that in the cities that have done that, housing has increased as well. Uh, so those are the big things, but um, there's a number of other things, but you know, we, we also want to uh, get rid of what's called the Faircloth Amendment which uh, prevents the production of public housing. So right now you can't build public housing. Um, that used to be a staple for making sure that low-income people had options. Um, and so wow. that, that is something that's, that's gone off the radar as well. That's insane. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm glad that, again, I'm glad you guys are working on things like this. So um, I think it's amazing also that you, your organization is advocating for a better use of the Department of Housing and Urban Development's dollars. Can you talk about the work your organization is doing with that? Well, um, there's a number of things. So, um, and I know that uh, you'll probably ask me about this later, uh, but the Department of Housing and Urban Development, one, um, they do a good job in many areas. I, you know, they're the last resort for people that are homeless. So um, for emergencies, for making sure that people don't suffer in the elements, they do an incredible job. Mm -hmm. But when, when it comes to long-term housing solutions, that's where we think that there needs to be a change, that there needs to be more resources dedicated uh, to long-term housing. There is a long-term housing program now that I, I think we may talk about later, mm -hmm. but it only meets the needs of about 30% of the people. Okay. So your program is housing first, right? So yeah. housing first is what we should be doing. But right now, the way we're doing housing first is that not enough people that need the housing qualify. So there's a select group of people and you basically have to uh, earn your way onto the list of people eligible for that housing, basically. So you have to be what's called chronically homeless mm -hmm. or what's called permanent supportive housing. That's kind of the primary uh, housing choice for permanent supportive housing under HUD. And I don't want to bore you with the whole uh, long um, uh, explanation of permanent supportive housing, but basically what it is, you take a person from the street, you put them in the housing. Uh, there's no uh, going into a program they have to qualify for. They don't have to be sober. They don't have to be mentally um, stable. Um, they just have to need the housing, basically. 
Uh, it's been proven to work really, really well right there in New York City uh, through a program called Pathways. Um, it really, th there was a, a lot of people that really, uh, they started treatment, they got clean. All they needed was that roof over their head to get the process started. So it really works, but it's only right now designed for people who are considered chronically homeless. That's about 10 to 20% of the population. Okay. And for the rest of the population, you have a program called rapid rehousing. And then if they're not a veteran, they basically have to find the housing on their own. Okay. Uh, so we think that that program should be expanded uh, to be eligible. Housing first should be housing first for everybody and not just <laughs> chronically homeless people. I agree with that statement. You kind of answered my next question somewhat. So, yeah, the Housing Department of Housing Urban Development, a.k.a. HUD, they have the Continuum of Care program, which provides funding for, from what I understand, private organizations to essentially implement the main aspects of the Housing First model, like permanent supportive housing and then the rapid rehousing. So, and then um, what is this Continuum of Care program? Is that what you kind of just explained? or Well, explain it's, that? it's part of what I explained. So the Continuum is all of the housing options available in a community. Okay. So whether it's the permanent housing, um, some communities still have what's called transitional housing, but the continuum is all the agencies in the community getting together to create a plan that takes people from outreach on the street to permanent housing. Uh, and there's there's a lot of different components to it. It's uh, They put together a list of all the people in the community and they get prioritized for housing um, in the community. Um, so it is um, it is a really um, complex system, uh, but it's the system that directs people from off the street into housing, the housing that best fits their needs. Okay. So it might involve domestic violence housing or housing for families. Um, so all of those programs are in that continuum. That was something we created in our offices. Wow. So we, we were, um, uh, we helped. Uh, introduced the McKinney-Vento program. That's a program that provides all the housing um, uh, through the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Um, it's still, Amazing. it was created as an emergency response and that's still what we're using 20 years later, almost mm -hmm. 30 years later, actually. That's very outdated. And especially with yes. the coronavirus, it's gonna make this housing crisis, the homelessness crisis even worse. Absolutely. Gonna, we, need a, we need this solution like ASAP. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, is it feasible for HUD to use their dollars to implement Housing First? Like, is it feasible for them to provide, use their dollars to provide funding for the states, for them to then implement statewide Housing First model? Is that feasible? Well, well basically what they do is it's on a community by community level. Okay. So HUD takes, takes their federal allotment from Congress and they use uh, the continuum of care process um, to, to send money to local jurisdictions. So sometimes it's a, it's a city, sometimes it's a county, um, sometimes there is a balance of state where the money's delivered to a state and the state actually covers the smaller communities in the state. Usually the bigger communities, which are called entitlement communities, um, they have their own process. They get some, a few million dollars and they decide how to spend that. Um, and unfortunately, most of it right now 
gets spent on permanent supportive housing. So it's spent on renewing what we already have. Uh, the people who are already being housed in that program, most of the HUD money goes to renew uh, the leases for those people that are already there. So that's why you see so many people, the growing number of people on the street, because mm -hmm. there's no money for new programs. So basically we're funding 80 to 90% of the funding goes to the, the renewals and only uh, six to 10% of that goes to uh, any kind of new programming that might be able to help those people still on the street. I see. Okay. What are the most common misconceptions about how people become homeless and who actually comprises the homeless population in this country? Uh, I'm glad you asked. Great question. So the, the, the biggest misconception, I think, and one that really kind of rattles my nerves when I hear it, is that people want to be homeless. Mm -hmm. Now, I've been doing this work for almost 30 years now. Never once, whether I was working outreach or as a program manager or as an executive director, have I heard anyone say that they wanted to be homeless. Yeah. Um, I've heard people say they didn't want to be in a shelter because if you're in a shelter, you're still homeless. And, you know, there's some really uh, tough conditions in shelters, um, yes. particularly now with COVID. I mean, you're in a uh, a congregate facility with hundreds of other people, and all of you are susceptible to um, to COVID, which mm -hmm. can kill you. Um, but I've never heard anybody just say they didn't. They wanted to remain homeless. Uh, they want a house. They want an apartment. They want some place where uh, they can safely lay their head. So that is the biggest misconception. Um, the other misconception is that they're all drug addicts or alcoholics. Mm -hmm. That's just not the case. I mean. Uh, most people are episodically homeless, and uh, there's a whole range of issues that they deal with from domestic violence to bad money management uh, to loss of job uh, to loss of um, to divorce. Um, all of those things become issues. Foreclosure. Uh, usually you don't go right to homelessness after foreclosure, but eventually you may get there. Mm -hmm. um, overcrowding, um, evictions, um, all kinds of issues. Um, so um, if you look at the list of issues, health can be an issue. Uh, substance abuse is is not that much higher than it is in the general public, mm -hmm. nor is mental illness. So um, those are not the only reasons and by far uh, not the biggest reasons that people are homeless in this country. Okay. And you, you, you talked about like the misconception of who's homeless. The largest growing sector right now is women and children. Mm -hmm. A third of the population is children. Okay. And some of them are hidden um, from, from view, uh, but they're in fact homeless as well. All right. And what role does systemic racism play in homelessness in America? So uh, it, it has a, um, a huge role. Um, it plays a huge role. So mm -hmm. um, systemic racism... Uh, is is a is a very very old um, issue. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's been around, you know, since the beginning of time. Uh, certainly since the beginning of the origins of this country. Mm -hmm. And so a couple of really big things that play out uh, when it comes to structural racism. First, homelessness uh, probably was exacerbated uh, when um, the country decided to discriminate against people of color in housing. Mm -hmm. So um, redlining is something that's often talked about. 
And that was an intentional government policy that steered people away from neighborhoods of color and people of color away from more affluent neighborhoods. And this was this was not something that, you know, bankers made up or realtors made up. It was actually a federal government property, even um, policy and even for veterans returning from the war. Uh, they were not encouraged to move into um, non-color, uh, uh, non-neighborhoods of color. Um, so federal government, that practice, uh, that stayed in practice till probably the 60s. So what that did is that really um, created that wealth disparity because a lot of wealth um, is generated through home ownership. And so yes. without that home ownership availability, um, the, the wealth gap continued. Um, people continue to redline in rental properties today. So when you look at homelessness in this country, uh, I'll just take African-Americans, for instance, they make up 13% of the population, but 40% of the homeless population. Yep. And uh, you can't blame that on poverty because if you look at the poverty numbers, poverty numbers for white people in the country, um, when you look at poverty and then you look at homelessness, poverty's here homelessness is here. If you look at poverty for African-Americans, poverty is here and homelessness is here. So we know that that poverty is not the problem. So it is the underlying issues um, that are structural in nature. Um, and we still see that. Uh, the one thing about uh, the, the permanent supportive housing is when, when we go into communities and look, what we find is that the people who get qualified for the permanent supportive housing, the long-term subsidy through the homeless system are white. Uh, black people used to get short-term subsidies or rapid rehousing. And that has a whole lot to do with this, the prioritization system that we use, uh, but we can see inequities across the board. Not only how many people get in, but where they go. So a lot of the people of color are sent into um, formerly red line neighborhoods where there's high crime, uh, few resources, and abject poverty. Um, and that's where we're sending people back to. So they come back into the system because we put them in unhealthy places uh, that they couldn't thrive in in the first place. So they can't thrive when they go back. So. Makes sense. So what I saw that the National Alliance to End Homelessness, um, based off that last point you made, they they implemented a tool on their website to determine if um, if these permanent supportive housing organizations are like racially profiling people. I think that's a great thing that that they're doing. I found that out a couple of days ago. Um, I was like, that's ridiculous that <laughs> that even in the initiatives to help people get out of homelessness, there's still this systemic racism. And then what role does the criminal justice system play in homelessness in America? Um, so in terms it, of it, systemic it plays, racism? It, so systemic racism, uh, so we know that um, African-Americans are arrested more, they're jailed more, um, and uh, they typically have records that pre prevent them from getting housing um, uh, through some of the, the federal programs. Uh, but it also plays a role in uh, the harassment can have long-term effects on people's mental stability. Mm -hmm. uh, it causes aggression. 
So we know now that um, the negative uh, attention of the police department, uh, long-term police brutality um, can cause a, a trauma that's very similar to PTSD mm -hmm. in people. And so um, all of the mental health issues um, that a person coming back from combat uh, in, a, in a foreign war um, has, uh, people living in communities that are constantly on a daily basis um, in negative interactions with law enforcement, um, they have the same issues. And so those issues are very debilitating. They keep people from staying on jobs. They keep people um, in you know, adversarial situations. It causes people to strike out. It causes violence, causes low self-esteem. All of these things contribute to homelessness. Um, and, uh, you know, there's also uh, the, the number of really brutal scenes we've seen, especially over the last year. Uh, we've had more of the um, violence against African-Americans uh, this year than we've had in, in many of the past years, although um, it's become uh, a really visible issue. Um, it's, it, it's actually at, at its peak right now, yeah. uh, which is startling to people. And, and so that does have a, a clear and present effect on people um, in the shelter system. Uh, but also um, kind of how people are punished. So um, for the same drug crimes, uh, people of color typically get jail time, mm -hmm. whereas people that are, are white won't get the same kind of penalties. Mm -hmm. and, uh, they may get probation or a drug treatment program. And, and if you look at the national statistics, even though the use patterns are very similar, uh, the punishment pattern patterns are very different when it comes to African Americans. Okay. Uh, yeah, I can definitely relate to the the PTSD. Not obviously not because of being black and police brutality, but just PTSD and my mental illness is what led me into homelessness. So I can relate to that. Like my PTSD, it was debilitating. My bipolar disorder was debilitating, and I wouldn't get out of bed and because I had bipolar one and I ended up homeless. So I, I definitely can see how that can have an effect on a person <laughs> and um, lead them into homelessness. Definitely not on the same scale, of course, but. Well, congratulations on your being able to get through that. And Thank you. full disclosure, full transparency, I experienced homelessness myself twice. Wow. Uh, once as a child and once as an adult. Wow. Where do the largest issues lie when it comes to eliminating homelessness in the U.S.? Well, I, th I think the largest issue is um, uh, Congress making it a priority. Um, because okay. we've had four distinct periods of homelessness in this country. And for the other three, there has been an influx of federal dollars there's been targeted programs. Uh, we have not seen this in this particular period of homelessness, which happens to be the longest continuous period in history. Okay. Uh, so Congress has not stepped up to the plate to provide any kind of comprehensive solution. We continue to see incremental fixes over and over again. Uh, so even if we do a really good job, and I think the providers in the system do a great job of managing homelessness, 
uh, they can't they can't shut off the inflow. So every time somebody goes out the front door, as my friend at the National Alliance would say, uh, somebody's coming in the back door. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're not getting enough people out of homelessness, uh, but people continue to be poured in um, okay. as the wealth gap grows. As now, right now, we have an eviction cliff um, that that you know could be uh, increased homelessness by forty two percent. Oh, um, so we uh, we we have some big mountains to climb. Even with the moratorium, we're not providing resources for people to uh, mitigate, you know, the the large uh, amounts of back rent and and the utility payments that they have to pay. So as soon as those end, you'll you'll see a flood of unless Congress decides to 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 do um, this fourteen hundred dollars stimulus, and I think even. Beyond that, they need to make sure that uh, people can pay those back rents so they can get back to some normalcy in their lives. I agree. I think that it should have been monthly, the 1400s. Yes. <laughs> universal was... basic or universal guaranteed income. There we go. So um, on a more positive note, can you highlight some of the people and or organizations that are doing a great job in terms of solving the homelessness crisis here in America? So um, I would say we do it in a way that's very different because we rely on homeless people to help us at all levels of our work. So we um, uh, get our um, policy um, initiatives, our policy direction, uh, and homeless people are at the the forefront of our leadership. Uh, So I I have to say the National Coalition for the Homeless, but I would also say the National Healthcare for the Homeless Council. Um, so they work on health-related issues when it comes to homelessness. Okay. Uh, their executive director was just um, appointed to the White House Council on COVID-19. Uh, so All they right. do a fantastic job. The National Alliance does a good job uh, when it comes to the providers. Mm-hmm. Um, so they do more work on the provider side. We do more work on the people side. Okay. Um, the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the National Coalition of Homeless Veterans. Okay. Awesome. Uh, Schoolhouse Connection is another. Uh, they work on the education of homeless children and youth. Okay. Um, so those are some good, um, some really good organizations. Awesome. Yeah, people a lot of the times don't think about the youth that are homeless, whether that's oh, yes. Those that were kicked out of their homes because they're LGBTQ and their families don't approve of them, or really is because, big reason. yeah, or is because they're, um, for for whatever reason, their parents ended up homeless. And then in New York City, I know this has been a problem recently, is getting Wi-Fi into shelters. Oh yeah, so these kids can go to school. So and this and that's is a huge issue. City. Just think about a rural community or uh, a Native American um, reservation. Right. Um, those the, the the chances of getting quality Wi-Fi are, are zero to none. Mm-hmm. And so those kids are really suffering uh, yeah. when it comes to education. It's horrible. OK. Um, and before I let you go, I've found that there are like 100 coalitions. I'm just curious about this. So they're like the 100 coalitions to end homelessness in America. What are the barriers like? What separates these organizations from joining forces and working towards their same common goal, which is ending homelessness? So so we work together on a lot of different issues. Okay. So we do 
um, a lot of uh, collective campaigns awesome. to address homelessness. Um, so there's 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 only a three or four national groups that work on the issue. And so we work on it in different ways. Okay. So the National Alliance, for instance, they're more of a trade organization. So they work on behalf mainly of the providers. Mm -hmm. um, now, the National Coalition, we're more personal in our mission. So we work on not only working to end homelessness, but we also work to make sure that people are safe in their while they're homeless. So basically, you know, we look at, you know, quality of life issues for people on the street. Uh, we look at the criminalization of people on the street. Um, and a lot of other organizations, especially in, in Washington, D.C., they're, they're really focused on the federal funding and uh, how to change legislation. Okay. Uh, we, we certainly work on those issues as well, but we also work on legal issues and we work on, you know, the day-to-day -day lives of people. Uh, we work on morbidity and mortality for people that are homeless. Um, uh, so um, we work on making sure homeless people have voting rights. Um, so we work on a lot of the personal issues that homeless people encounter in their journey. Uh, and that's different from a lot of the groups that are really into uh, the the day-to-day um, -day lobby efforts and, and uh, the different bills and uh, administrative uh, executive orders and all those things that, that do have quite a bit of impact, uh, but don't get down to the grassroots level. We're more of a grassroots organization. I see. Is, and then is there anything else that you'd like to showcase about the National Coalition for the Homeless? Um, yeah, right now, we, we have uh, homeless people, uh, some for the first time in their lives, working on uh, program design and delivery uh, with HUD. So we're working with the federal government to ensure that the voices of people with lived experiences um, or lived expertise are in every aspect of the government's work as well. So like yourself, I mean, and myself, we can we can bring to the table things that people would never even think about when they are uh, thinking about how to address homelessness. And sometimes it's just really practical stuff. Um, I remember being in a meeting and going on and on about, you know, the, the, the bill and the language around the bill that was being addressed and how much money was for. And uh, I brought a couple of homeless people to the table with me and they basically said, this is a wonderful program. We love it, but there's no buses. How do people get there? So just kind of that practical, you know, real life information mm -hmm. that sometimes, you know, policymakers and advocates don't think about. It's so important to have that at the table. Okay. Well, that's all I've got for you today. Uh, Donald, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I'm truly honored. And I really appreciate you sharing your perspective on homelessness and what your organization does and as well as the role that systemic racism plays and who really comprises the homeless population as well as the misconceptions. So, and I, I learned an enormous amount and I'm sure that my listeners did too. So thank you very much. Well, and I thank you too. And if you, um, if you want to join us in the fight, we'd love to have you. Uh, go to our website and become a member. We we would absolutely love to have you in the fight. Oh my Your story is amazing. Please do you. it. Okay, great. I will do that as soon as we get off of this call. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And and again, 
congratulations to you and thank you so much for allowing me to be here. Thank you. Thank you. A special thanks goes out to the man, the myth, the legend, Ice Cream, an amazing music producer, and more importantly, an amazing human being for providing the music for this podcast. You can find him on social media and all music platforms at I-C-E-K-R-E-A-M. Thank you all for listening. And in the next episode, I will be talking with Tommy Newman. He is the Senior Director at the United Way of Greater Los Angeles. Stay tuned. Them have the guns, but how we have the numbers?